episode 134, Nerd Outlaws. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a June 1st, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. I can't tell you what it really is I can only tell you what it feels like And right now it's a steel knife in my windpipe I can't breathe All families are a little dysfunctional Some are downright criminal Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine clothing fragments worn by members of the infamous Dalton Gang In the 1890s, this misfit band of brothers roamed the Midwest robbing banks and trains it all came to an end, though, when a failed Kansas bank robbery blew up in their faces. Then, we go behind the scenes with curator Laurel Fritsch to discuss an online exhibit in the making. Though oppressive liquor laws came early to Kansas, Fritsch's research into a collection of beer steins from an elite Topeka social club indicate that even those who wrote the laws may have completely ignored them. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to American Samoa. Discovered by the Dutch, colonized by the German, and now owned by the U.S., this tiny island in the South Pacific has a storied past. Did White enjoy a few summer vacations at this remote tropical paradise where he drank mojitos and slowly baked in the sun? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Nerd Outlaws. That was yesterday, yesterday is over, it's a different day. Sound like broken records playing over, but you promised them. Next time you show Good morning, Michaela. Hello, Merle. Today we are discussing two wool fragments from a pair of plaid pants. Uh, These fragments were once worn by members of the notorious Dalton Gang, a band of outlaws that operated in the Midwest in the 1890s. But before we get to the fragments, let's just kind of give a little background on these guys. The Dalton Gang, which is named for the brothers that led the gang, Mm -hmm. was one of several nefarious gangs operating at the time. What kind of crimes were these gangs committing, and why was law enforcement not more more effective at stopping them? Well, the Dalton gang was notorious in their time mainly for committing train robberies, and most of their crimes happened between 1890 and 1892, so they operated within a fairly short time span before they met their downfall. Uh Um, Bob was the first Dalton brother to be accused of crime, and at the age of 19, he was accused of killing a man who tried to steal his girlfriend. Oh, so it all starts. Yeah. And then he reportedly introduced liquor to Indian Territory. So, way to go, Bob. (laughs) Um, Mainly the Daltons were after money or things that could be cashed in for money, but they also stole horses. Um, At various times, law enforcement was able to capture at least one member of the gang. Never the gang as a whole, but usually one member at a time. But the Daltons were pretty crafty, and they performed some amazing escapes, like jumping from moving trains and things like that. 
They're the law enforcement's most effective means of tracking down criminals was basically the wanted poster. Right. Um, they didn't have CSI. Exactly. Exactly. And it wasn't like CSI West. <laughs> the old West. Yeah. Um, it's not like they had television and radio and the internet where they could load the, the airwaves with alerts about, you know, unwanted criminal and plaster photos, you know, all over the world just with a click of a button. Um, the gang also moved around a lot from Kansas and Oklahoma all the way to California. Well, apparently this crime, it was a family business. Uh, tell us about the Dalton brothers and their relationship to the James mm-hmm. gang, because which is a similar crime, crime mm-hmm. family. Right. Uh, there's a connection between the two. Right. And what was all, what was their connection to Kansas? Why were they in the Midwest? Okay. Uh, and specifically why in Kansas? Okay, well, the Daltons didn't actually start out their their life as criminals. They were actually lawmen. They never do. They never do. That's right. Wait, they, they were what? They were on the right side of the law. They were lawmen. Um, the oldest brother, Frank Dalton, was a U.S. Marshal, and um, he was based out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. So he kind of operated in the the northwest corner of Arkansas, southern Missouri, Kansas, and, and Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um the other Dalton brothers actually helped him out when he needed to form a posse to go hunt down. What were the names of the other brothers? Uh, let's see. There was Frank, Grat, Bob, and Emmett. Frank was actually killed in the line of duty in 1887. Maybe looking to avenge their brother's death, Grat, Bob, and Emmett, they became lawmen, you know, thinking, okay, we're going to get the bad guys. Sure. But by 1890, they had moved to the other side of the law. And actually, Emmett Dalton later wrote a book about their, their exploits. Um, Emmett and Dalton, as we'll see, is the one that survives. The one that survives, yeah. Um, and actually lives a long life you know, after being in jail. Um, anyway, uh, he said that the reason they went bad was because the government didn't honor its payments to them as lawmen. They never got paid. And so they decided, well, if we're not going to get paid, we'll, we'll take this into our own sure. hands. It seems like a good solution. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the Daltons, their relationship to the James gang, um, the Dalton brothers were cousins to the Youngers, which the James gang was also known as the James Younger gang. Um, The Youngers rode with the Jameses. Um, uh, The Dalton gang's mother was a Younger, so she was actually an aunt to Cole and James Younger, who rode with, with Jesse James. Right. So it's like one big messed up <laughs> Well, and the connection to Kansas, the Dalton family wasn't necessarily from Kansas. Um, I'm, I'm not sure you could say they're from anywhere because they moved around quite a bit before they kind of finally settled down. Um, it seems they started out in Missouri. Um, then their father was a saloon keeper in Kansas City, Kansas for a while. Um, they moved to Indian Territory, and then they eventually settled in Coffeeville, Kansas, which is in the southeast corner of Kansas. Um, by the time the parents settled there, most of the boys were adults, um, you know, mid, mid, mid-teens mid to mid-twenties. That's old man in, in Wild West. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a late start to be a criminal, I guess. Um, but they, they did know the Coffeeville area pretty well mm-hmm. because, you know, they'd visited their parents there and some of them had lived there. So The Dalton brothers hatched what they believe was a plan for a brilliant heist in Coffeeville, Kansas. Mm-hmm. The plan literally blew up in their faces. It did. What was the heist all about, and how did it end for the for the Dalton boys? Well, up until Coffeeville, the Daltons had 
you know, been pulling off small heist trains, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and were these? I mean, were these guys well known? Like, were, were they were they public enemy number one? Was there? Well, I don't think they were necessarily public enemy number one. I mean, they were they were doing this at the same time the James Gang was operating, and I think the James Gang is much better known. Um, so they've been pulling off small heists. They were doing pretty well, but they decided that they wanted to pull off the biggest heist that had been attempted to date, and that was robbing two banks simultaneously. Uh, That's ambitious. It's ambitious. The James gang hadn't even attempted two banks at one time. Was there a sense of one-upsmanship between these two organizations? I think there was. And I think think Bob Dalton probably was pretty – he felt pretty competitive with – the James gang, and he was like, you know what, we're better than these guys. We can totally take two banks at once. And I think the reason they thought they could do it was because there were two banks in Coffeeville that were located essentially kind of catty corner across the street from each other. And they knew Coffeeville. Mm-hmm. They they thought, okay, we know the town, we we know the area around the town, and we can do this. We could do this with our eyes closed. You know, sure. they know the area. So that I the think the problem is, is that the area also knows them. Exactly. The people in Coffeeville, when when the gang rode into town, they knew who the Dalton gang was. They knew them from them having lived in the area. They knew them from their exploits. Mm-hmm. So people were suspicious when they all rode into town. Um, part of their plan failed because they couldn't put their horses where they thought they could because of road work. So already oh, from the beginning, road construction. Is, where the, the hitch where they thought they could put their horses was blocked off, so they couldn't get there. So already, you know, things are like, you know, kind of falling apart, but they don't see it that way. They're like, eh, we'll just park in the alley around the corner, no big, no big thing. Um, so they rode into town, hitch their horses in the alley, three men go into one bank, and two men go into the other bank. Um, again, what they hadn't counted on was the townspeople recognizing them, and almost instantly people are crying out, bank robbery, it's the Dalton gang, you know. And they also didn't count on the citizens taking the law into their own hands, mm-hmm. which they could have been helped by some of those Westerns we've all watched over the years because you know that's going to happen. Sure, everybody's armed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they attempted the robberies, but um, a shootout ensued. The people of the town either had their own guns or they ran to, like, basically the local hardware store and were given guns and a shootout Mm -hmm. opened up. So um, it lasted all of 15 minutes. But at the end of those 15 minutes, uh, I think like four townspeople were killed and everyone in the Dalton gang was dead except for Emmett Dalton, who um, survived 23 gunshot wounds. He had been shot 23 times. Yeah, Completely blew up in their faces. The Daltons botched their bank robbery, but the humiliation was just beginning for them. The events of that day led to um, an iconic photograph, which, if you don't know, you, most of you have probably actually seen it, didn't mm-hmm. realize it, but it's a picture of four dead Daltons on a wood plank. I mm-hmm. mean, it is sort of the epitome of what happens to criminals in the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was taken shortly after the, the robbery was uh, foiled. Right. And it was at this point that another character called J.J. Rambo enters the story. Who is this guy and how did he end up with fragments of the pants that were worn by the Dalton brothers? Well, J.J. Rambo was a newspaper man from Chautauqua, Kansas, which is about 30 miles east of Coffeeville. And he was in town after the shootout, of course, to cover the events. Sure. Uh, Coffeeville kind of became a tourist mecca after that, and hundreds of people descended on the town to see the bodies of the Dalton gang, uh-huh. right? 
and to see the banks, you know, where the the glass was glass windows had holes in it, you right. know, all that kind so of. So even at the time, by 1890s, this was all being romanticized. Oh, absolutely. This was all yeah. being like amplified and 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 romanticized for the public consumption. Right. Well, after the shootout occurred, the bodies of the fallen Dalton member Dalton gang members were literally piled in a heap in a jail cell, and that is another famous picture that people may have seen without even realizing it. It's just a pile of bodies and heads are going every way. They literally just threw them in a jail cell. Um, The next morning, the bodies were laid out on a hay wagon to be photographed and so that people could view them. And then that's the picture that everybody really recognizes. Again, hundreds of people descended on the town to see the outlaws. And of course, they had to take a souvenir with them. Mm -hmm. So they took bits of everything. They took hair from um, the horses, manes, and tails of of the gang. That's fun. Yeah. They took straps from their saddles. And of course, they took pieces of their clothing. Well, the pieces that we have in our collection came from Bob and Gratz clothing. And if you look at photos that were taken of the bodies um, as they were being prepared for burial, um, Bob's pants are missing most of one leg and Gratz's jacket is missing most of an entire arm. Uh-huh. So I think one piece, one fragment came from Bob's pants and the other came from Gratz's jacket. And so Rambo probably collected the clothing fragments when he was in Coffeeville covering the event. So finally, the fragments are brown and black plaid wool, which is itchy, and quite honestly, appear to be the uniform (laughs) of a nerd. So nerd robbers. (laughs) Instead of like cool rebel denim jeans, these outlaws were wearing nerd pants. Why? Right. Well, out of curiosity, I looked up the definition of nerd, and nerd is defined as single-minded person obsessed with a non-social hobby or pursuit. So if you consider theft to be their <laughs> non-social hobby, they were just wearing their uniform. That right. was their nerd uniform. So you're saying by definition, they were just nerds for crime? And nerds for crime. But I mean, seriously, though, they were just wearing what everyone wore at the time. Um, jeans weren't really worn by anyone but workmen at this point. They weren't like the United States national uniform yet. Uh-huh. Um, All right, Nikila. Well, thanks for telling us about the Dalton gang and uh, parts of their pants. No problem. And you're still probably working at a nine to five pace. I wonder how bad that tastes when you see my face. Hope it gives you hell. Hope it gives you hell. The topic of today's Kansas quiz is a life of crime. Though the Dalton and James gangs both enjoyed a life of crime they had different motivations for becoming criminals. Many believe the events of the Civil War and its outcome had an effect on Frank and Jesse James' actions after the war ended. Hailing from Missouri, the James family sided with the Confederacy. Frank James reportedly rode with a gang that carried out one of the bloodiest attacks on Kansas soil to occur during the war between the states. Can you name that event? Tankards and Steins are just funny names for a mug, right? Wrong. These drinking vessels are part of a European tradition of beer drinking. In the early 20th century, immigrants brought this tradition to Kansas. Unfortunately, it clashed with the state's oppressive regime of liquor laws. Today, we go behind the scenes to talk to curator Laurel Fritch about a collection of beer steins from the Topeka Club, an elite social organization in the time of Prohibition. 
You are currently developing an online exhibit that features several amazing steins, mugs, and tankards. Some of these drinking vessels are huge and highly decorative, uh, but most of us didn't even realize they existed in our collection here at mm -hmm. the museum. What first drew you to the idea of a stein exhibit? Well, it was actually a different project that I was working on. I was selecting some ceramic objects for one of the webs one of the museum's website sections called Popular Collections. And as I was looking for neat objects to feature there, I just, you know, kept seeing all these amazing steins. And um, so after doing a little bit more research, I found out that 36 of them were all donated by the same club. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, what is going on here? Um, and again, a little bit more research um, revealed that it was just absolutely fascinating. So you mentioned a particular set of steins, mm -hmm. um, about 32 steins from one entity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of interesting because Kansas kind of has it has a long history of sort of weird alcohol laws mm -hmm. related to prohibition and temperance. Mm -hmm. um, this collection came from the Topeka Club, which is a I guess a social organization that existed in Topeka. Yes. Um, but some speculated that it was more than just your average social club in a time of uh, in a time of prohibition that there may have been more things going on. And in fact, it's pretty in your face when you think about the like, the fact that they had beer steins all yes. over the place. Yes. Um, what kind of organization was this, and is it is it as scandalous as like what some of your research may be indicating? Yeah. Um, add on to that that it was pretty much just a gentleman's social club. Although um, women were certainly, you know, allowed to come in and things like that, they weren't necessarily allowed to be members. Um, and that sort of gentleman clubs was very popular around the time that the club was founded, which was in 1889. Um, and really it was sort of for the cream of the crop of Topeka. And it was, you know, people like railroad magnets and a lot of politicians and lawyers and people like that. But it wasn't necessarily exclusive to Topeka. There were other prominent citizens around the state that were included as well. So where was the, was there, there was a physical building, a brick yes. and mortar building for the club? The, yeah. the clubhouse? Yeah, there was a clubhouse, exactly. Um, and in fact, we have four of the, are massively huge. They're quite they're, tall. They're quite I mean, tall. If you can drink out of these, I would be impressed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they were more decorative for, for the clubhouse area. So these particular tankards were um, at the entrance, or they were just kind of display? You know, we don't have any real photographs of the interior, so I can't say for sure, but it's my, my guess is they probably sort of lined the main entrance way or mm -hmm. something like that. So there was a couple of uh, particular instances that, that um, they were charged with... Uh, um, illegal drinking, right? Right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Um, there are two main in, um, incidents that I've found so far. One was in 1893, and uh, the new police chief of Topeka, he ended up raiding the clubhouse, and he arrested a whole bunch of its members, I'd say maybe four of the directors of the Topeka Club at that time. Um, and uh, he said, you know, you guys are, you know, doing illegal drinking on the premises and stuff like that. And so it ended up going, you know, and every um, on the case ended up going on, but it was quickly dismissed for basically a lack of evidence. Mm -hmm. And um, what's, while you're surrounded by beer steins, but a lack they of could, evidence. hey, if there's no beer in it, sure. you know, what can you say? Um, and one that's a little bit more of a, a cat cat fight sort of situation um, was in 1909. 
And um, there was a disagreement with members of the club having private lockers. And um, so it was claimed that what people were doing was just basically stocking these private lockers with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Kansas governor of the time, uh, Walter Stubbs, he didn't really like this. He didn't feel comfortable with it. So he resigned from the club. At one point, Governor Stubbs was asked to attend a party that was being held, or he was invited to attend a party um, th that was being held at the at the club, and the club said, "No, no, you're you're not coming in." Said, "You resigned from the club. You've said that you don't want to be here, so forget about it. You're not coming in the door." Mm -hmm. Then, you know, it just ended up snowballing into this huge affair that was covered in all the papers. Our good friend William Allen White even wrote in, and he said that uh, the club was stuck up and pretentious, and they were corrupt and all mm -hmm. of this stuff. Um, Which I'm sure is right because that's what that's what it, that's what a social yeah, club is for. Yeah, exa exactly. Um, and it just sort of turned into this big thing. It, there were political cartoons in the newspaper and stuff like that. Um, so it's just a really fun little, you know, like a childish kind of a spat. Mm -hmm. um, Can you describe a little bit about some of the designs in the mugs that you've seen so far? Sure. Um, a lot of them are just your standard uh, ceramic mug, except that they have different figures and landscapes and features like that sort of molded on. So they sort of jut out a little bit. Um, and a lot of them are, of course, drinking scenes, um, people hanging out around tables and things like that. So I, you know, these Various members of the clubs, you know, they just saw a cool mug that they liked. They bought it, and uh, they ended up donating it to the to the club for supposedly for decoration. I'm sure they didn't drink from it. All right. Well, thanks, Laurel, for telling us about the tankards and mugs from the Topeka Club. Kayla Zimmerman, and the answer to today's Kanza quiz is Quantrill's raid on Lawrence. On the 21st of August, 1863, a group of men led by William Clark Quantrill descended on the town of Lawrence, Kansas. The gang burned the town to the ground and killed 164 men and boys. The event was part of an ongoing border war that took place between Kansas and Missouri before and during the Civil War. Lawrence was attacked because of its abolitionist stance and in, re in retaliation for attacks against pro-slavery towns in Missouri. Frank James reportedly rode with Quantrill and participated in the raid. The James Gang's tactics in robbing banks and trains were often influenced by the guerrilla warfare that took place during the Civil War. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Kekeisen. Hello. Today we connect William Allen White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to American Samoa, a tiny U.S. island territory in the Pacific Ocean. Bob, could you give us a little background on American Samoa? Sure. Well, American Samoa is located in the South Pacific, and it's part of the Samoan island chain, which is between Hawaii and Australia. There's a lot out there, yeah, but there's some islands, too. I think it would be easy to miss <laughs> sitting by because it's only 76 square miles. Now, we think that's square miles, so not, it's not even as wide as mm -hmm. it is, which is slightly smaller than the smallest county in Kansas. 
which is Wyandotte County up in the northeast. So those of you that are familiar with that area, you think of this entire place is no bigger than Wyandotte mm -hmm. County. Wow. Well, it was first inhabited by Polynesians in 850 AD, and Europeans discovered the island in the 18th century. And although American Samoa is a United States territory, it's culturally linked to the island of Western Samoa, which is now the independent nation of Samoa. Mm -hmm. So just wow. to get this clear, I asked, it's a little confusing. There's an American Samoa and there's a Samoa Samoa. <laughs> so, and the division, like a lot of countries, uh, the division was the result of British, U.S. and German colonial rivalry. So how much... You know, have we gone around carving up the rest of the right. world? It's, it's yeah. incredibly confusing. There, who actually owned what island at one mm -hmm. time? It's just, just you know, yeah. all you got to know is there was people that everybody claimed yeah, it, right. nobody owned it's it. It's kind of like in Africa. I mean, people my age, I still think of the Belgian Congo. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so anyway, well, in 1899, those three nations, the the the, the uh, Great Britain, the United States, and Germany. Uh, they formally divided the islands and forced the legitimate Polynesian ruler to submit. So for years, the territory was administered by a Navy-appointed governor. However, after World War II, American Samoa established a legislature placing this unorganized territory in the odd position of being organized. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting when you start looking at it. There's like a whole of, you know, of U.S. territories. There's like a hierarchy or a tier. There's organized or unorganized and sort of um, like claimed or unclaimed. So there's lots of different places out there that we own. And it's like, depends on how organized it is. And if you know anything about Kansas territory back in the territorial days, I think we were definitely in the unorganized category. <laughs> you know, that sounds like a show on HGTV, like, organize my territory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> organize my territory. Yeah. Give me a government, please. That's right. All right, thanks, Bob. Now to the game. And, Bob, you are the contestant, so okay. you're going to hear Yay. two chains of connection between William Allen White and American Samoa. Okay. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Nikayla, you go first. Okay, well, during World War II, the United States maintained a base on Samoa, and from this base, the U.S. launched atomic attacks on Japan. Mm. Well, the most famous bomber that flew from this island was the Enola Gay, but it wasn't the only bomber in the squadron. The William Allen White also flew missions from Samoa. And now you're asking, the William Allen White? What? Wow, what? Well, the William Allen White got its name from the famous publisher. In 1945, the citizens of Emporia raised $25,000 in war bonds and were allowed to name a B-29 bomber. They, of course, chose their most famous resident as the plane's namesake. That guy's name was on everything. It was on everything. He got around. Impressive. All right, okay. on to mine. In 1899, representatives from Berlin, England, and the United States met in Washington, D.C. for what was called the Tripartite Conference to determine the destiny of Samoa. Once lands were divided up, President William McKinley signed an executive order on 19 February 1900 that placed the island of Tatula under the control of the U.S. Navy, effectively creating what we know today as American Samoa. One year later... William Allen White just happened to have been granted personal access to President McKinley at his home in Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio. He was very reclusive in the media, didn't really get much chance to interview him, but William Allen White got special permission. Later, within a month, William Allen White followed the president to Buffalo, New York for the Pan-American Exposition, where an anarchist named Leon Jolgatz assassinated <laughs> McKinley. Okay. All right. 
So, Bob, now you have to pick. Is it, is it a, uh, a World War II plane or is it a um, signing of a document that created a territory and an assassin? Well, I'm going to show my ignorance here. This is awful because I didn't know there was a B-29 named after William White, if indeed there was. Dum-dum-dum. <laughs> Dum-dum-dum. Was and, there a president named McKinley? <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm almost sort of leaning towards Merle's solution only because my son just played Leon Sholgosh in a production of Assassins. Was that close? Was that really the right pronunciation? Sholgosh. Yes. So there we go. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I usually, whenever I read it when I was a a history student, I would just go, Leon, yeah, that guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. um, They're both very plausible. I think I'm going to go with Merle's solution. That is correct, Bob. Very yes. good. That is correct. Yeah. Mine really, I mean, really happened. It, uh, William Allen White okay. did get an interview with McKinley, and McKinley was the one that signed the document okay. to create American Samoa. Okay. And was, there was a bomber named William Allen okay, White, and William it did Allen? fly with the Enola Gay. Okay. But the island was Tinian, not Samoa. Oh, oh they okay. didn't fly. See, they both Samoa. sounded really plausible. <laughs> and I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't know there was a B 29 named for William Allen well, White. Bob, I would not be embarrassed to admit that. I don't think that's really common. <laughs> Knowledge. Most famous bombers. All right, <laughs> All right uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next next episode? You bet. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to Valhalla. Really? <laughs> what? <laughs> According to Norse mythology, this massive heavenly space is the gathering place of gods and warriors in the afterlife. So come back in two weeks when we connect White to Valhalla. Did White have an affinity for Norse religion? Or did he simply enjoy enjoy large opera singers with horned hats? Find out in two weeks. That concludes episode 134, Nerd Outlaws. If you would like to see images of fragments torn from the legs of notorious criminals, go to our website. KSHS.org or check out KansasMemory.com, our digital repository. To receive regular updates on the latest events and see new artifacts, be sure to find the Kansas Historical Society on Facebook. In the next episode, curator Laurel Fritch and I examine a shawl that survived the Civil War and high adventure on the American West. The shawl belonged to little Elizabeth Rupert, the only daughter of a widowed Civil War soldier. In 1861, Lizzie's father wrapped her in this shawl when he moved from Virginia to Kansas. Forty years later, Lizzie wrapped her own granddaughter in the same shawl. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Because I like